0: Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Season 8 of Game of Thrones is underway, and you can stay up to date with the Ringer staff as we make our way through the final episodes of the series. On the podcast side, listen to Binge Mode Game of Thrones with Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion, The Watch with Chris Ryan and Andy Greenwald, and a pre cappable series on the Recapables feed where we'll make predictions on episodes to come. In addition to our Sunday night Twitter after show called Talk the Thrones, our YouTube channel has tons of other Game of Thrones related content, which you can find at youtube.com slash The Ringer. And for even more Thrones coverage, head over to TheRinger.com. J. Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Today's guests are the duo behind iconic restaurant group Joe Beef in Montreal, Canada. They have, I think, six or seven restaurants, and they've grown slowly but surely over a 15-plus year period. I've gotten to know them really well over those years, like 2006, 2007, I had to take uh, like 10 days off, and I was recuperating from shingles because I was too stressed out and my immune system collapsed, and I had to go someplace cool and quiet, and I went to Montreal, and I befriended Dave McMillan and Fred Morin when they were just starting out Joe Beef. We recorded this two, three months ago when they were in New York on their tour for their newest cookbook, Joe Beef Surviving the Apocalypse. This is their second cookbook, it is packed full of information and wisdom that they've learned over the years. Like they have seen just about everything in the culinary arts. They've been very vocal about it. They have very high emotional intelligence so they can tell a perspective that's rarely told in this business. And we had a long rambling talk at my apartment and I don't know if it's going to make sense to you, but hopefully enjoy it. I really need to hang out more with them because there are very few people that are as outspoken and honest and genuinely have their pulse on the industry, even though they're not American and even though they have restaurants in Montreal, I think what they've gone through and the trials and tribulations that they've endured can be a learning lesson for everyone in the culinary world, particularly cooks in the restaurant industry, because they've done something really remarkable and they've created a restaurant that has been copied many times over. You just might not realize it. So. I'll shut the fuck up. Here's my conversation with the Joe Beef team. Okay. I am with the founders of Joe Beef in Montreal and Liverpool House and what else?
1: Van Papillon, Make Vin Morin. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Dave McMillan, Fred Morin. Welcome to New York. You guys were now, I don't know what happened, but it's been hard to catch up with you guys. I haven't seen you in a while.
2: It's good to see you. It's it's great to see where you live too.
0: Yeah, it's weird. We are recording in my apartment. We're sort of in between places right now, but it's crazy. Last time I saw you guys was briefly at the Bourdain Memorial, Memorial, which was good to see everyone. But um, you guys have a new cookbook out.
2: Yep.
1: Called. Joe Beef Surviving the Apocalypse.
2: (laughs) With 101 easy Korean recipes.
0: That's printed upside down in between the letters. You have to play it backwards. Yes. Yes. But two of my most favorite people that I don't see enough in my my life. Um, So welcome. Welcome to New York.
1: Thank you kindly. We go back a while now. We go it's back a, a while 15 now. 15 years, maybe 14? No. Well, first year of Joe Beef, I think. I
0: would Maybe first, 13 years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, for real, yeah. Yeah, 13 yeah. years ago. Shit, that's been a while.
1: What were you trying to escape back then? Shingles? Forced, yeah.
0: Forced leave. So the story is, just to set some up, how we even got here— Like 2006, 2007, I was uh, very sick and I was recuperating from shingles on the face. And I had uh, lost some movement. My face was numb. My back hurt. I had obviously the shingles itself. And it was just like the end of the world. That's what it felt like. And I had been working too hard and stressed and too much of me doing me. And I had to take time off. And it was like August and the doctor was like, you should go somewhere cool and relaxing. The only thing I could think of, and I'd never been, was Montreal. And I don't remember who i had spoken to because I think when you thought about Montreal dining, you thought about Pete de cochon and that was like, Pretty much the extent of what I probably
2: spoke to Tony, and that's another one of his uh, (laughs) legacy. uh, It was also a weird time,
1: right? It was like pre Instagram, pre Twitter. If you needed information and wanted information, you kind of had to. We had found out about you, I think, back in the day through like Time
2: Out Magazine. (laughs) There was no
0: Uh, internet or. websites no, or nothing no no, no. I, yeah, couldn't yeah, just no be
2: like, I googled you on altavista
0: <laughs> even the phrase google you on Alta Vista." is hilarious yeah <laughs> but i uh, i went there and i think there was a cook i believe his name was mark wasn't his name mark i
2: think no it was ian arison i think that was ian. working the bar and ian was a friend of tony he worked with tony handled tony when. went we're talking Canada. about
0: Bourdain. Yeah. And uh, I was eating at Pete de Cochon and Martin Picard's yeah. famous, famous restaurant. And someone had mentioned, what are you doing here? I was like, I'm oh, just. Oh, yeah,
2: that was Marc-Andre. Yeah. It was
0: Marc-Andre. Wow. Yeah, shit. I can't believe I remember his name. And he's like, no, nah, you, you really should check out this restaurant called Joe Beef. And I didn't know what he was talking about. I was like, is this a steakhouse? Is this? And he tried to explain to me the historic significance of the name and how these guys, Fred and Dave are doing it. And I had no idea what he was talking about, but because there was no way for me to get information, I just showed up one day and I sit at, I go to Joe beef and I sit at the bar and I'll never forget. You had sort of the bathtub full of ice and wine, this big dude sitting back there shucking oysters. And I sit down at the bar and he, he basically like five minutes later, he's like, what the fuck? You basically cursed me out almost, right?
1: Yeah. I was like, what are you doing here? <laughs> I had
0: no idea. And I was familiar
1: with you back then because I don't know why someone had dropped off a magazine and it was no article of importance. I think it was at the beginning. It was just talking about how angry you were or how overworked you were. You were still working the line at your first yeah. restaurant or something like that. You were exhausted. The article was more or less writing that you were just <laughs> my back hurts my ankles hurt my knees hurt uh, the stove door is broken uh,
0: holes know. in the walls that hasn't really changed too much except all for the remember, holes in the walls are much less
2: all i remember from that article is in fact the dr pepper thing yeah. where like you oh, said yeah. no to everything else but the uh ob yeah. beer and the dr pepper
0: yeah little known fact uh, forgotten fact is that our first beverage at sambar was Diet Dr. Pepper and regular Dr. Pepper.
1: I love Dr. Pepper.
0: <laughs> but uh you what weren't there. Now? Yeah, not now. We have a, a big beverage list now, but I was um I didn't know who you guys were and you were shucking oysters. And I now know you were shucking oysters because your oyster guy, famous oyster guy, was was on vacation or something. Yeah,
2: John Bill, yeah. Yeah, it was at the championship in Europe.
0: Yeah, the Guinness World Oyster Shucking Competition.
2: Yeah,
1: and yeah. then you showed us how to make fried cauliflower. Did I do that? Yeah, you brought you. You came back in the kitchen and you made fried cauliflower with us.
0: Oh my god! But I had I had a wonderful meal that night, and we just got. It was the kind of recuperation that I needed to talk to individuals that were that love food, but we're cynical about the industry and we're really talented. And you guys had a relationship, a friendship that was deep. And I was just like, man, this is amazing. And I had one of the best weeks I've ever had in my life. And it was exactly what I needed at that time. And, you know,
2: still cynical
0: (laughs) more so even. (laughs) So before, so if people don't know, What is it about you guys? Like you guys started cooking together way back when in Montreal, right?
1: Yeah, we had a career before Joe Beef. Fred and I worked for a a decade in another restaurant on Saint Laurent Street, a very busy restaurant that did bottle service, that scantily dressed the waitresses. Misogyny was rampant. The audience that we had were receptive to good food. So I don't know, Fred and I kind of honed our skills somewhat in that restaurant. We were open seven days a week. We did massive numbers in that restaurant, uh, hundreds of customers a night. We ultimately learned a lot. We'd worked in smaller restaurants, higher-end dining before that, toque Caprice de Nicolas, a whole bunch of little French restaurants. So Fred and I were pretty good cooks, but we really learned how to cook for, you know, 160 people at 7 o'clock and 160 people at 9.30 and then another half service at 10 p.m., 10.30 in that restaurant. We got good at it, but we also... Burnt ourselves out in that restaurant. By the time we left uh, Globe, uh, I was pretty banged out. Fred was pretty banged out as well. We were both on anti-anxiety medications. We couldn't make the dogs stop barking inside our heads. And we had left. We, I was done. I was done with the industry. I got a medical, like, you're out. You, you're no longer allowed to work for six months. I went home and sat on the couch and watched Star Trek Next Generation for a year that, you know— And I just watched from afar Fred spiral down to exactly where I was. So later on, we used to live in the same neighborhood, two single, ugly guys. I lived on Walker Street. He lived on Marin. And we used to meet for coffee at this Cafe Joe place, which eventually we ended up buying for a few thousand dollars because it had a six burner stove, a deep fryer, and a hood, the same hood we still cook under today. And that restaurant was going to be. A 25 seat restaurant. I was going to shuck oysters. Fred was going to cook with an assistant. We were going to all share in the dishwashing duties, and uh, our then girlfriends were going to be the waitresses. And that's within. exactly
0: that's, what it was.
1: Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> yeah. what it was. It was 30 <laughs> seats, and we didn't serve cranberry juice. We didn't have Coca Cola. We had 15 white wines, 25 red wines. And on the chalkboard, the customer was often wrong, and that was it. That was that place you know, where we said yes to everything in our prior career. That was the restaurant that, no, I'm cooking this way. And if you don't like it, go fuck yourself. And that was it.
0: If you haven't been, especially then, because the neighborhood's changed quite a bit. The best way I could describe to someone that has never been, particularly then, is like, it was almost like a prune, The restaurant yeah, prune. No, you no, know.
2: I, right. And I told Gabrielle when we saw her, I said, I've never thanked you for that. But before you, before yeah. her... It was unthinkable to build a restaurant yourself, pick the own color and put some like bag Triscuit or put like diet Dr. Pepper or put like no cranberry juice or, you know, all those little statements. She's a little bit of a pioneer of that.
1: The canary in the coal mine of the tiny chef-owned restaurant.
0: To do whatever you wanted
1: to do. Yeah. And it's like, it's about me. It's not about you. It wasn't this... This is the 10 appetizers and eight main courses we feel like cooking. And if you don't like it, go somewhere else. It's fine. But this, is, this restaurant was more or less about Fred and I and the music that we liked
2: and the food that we liked. And if you didn't like it, I didn't care.
0: And what was, the, what was the food? You guys had both worked in Europe, right?
2: It's funny, but the food has never been the. A lot of chefs are in the hospitality in the restaurant business. And, and when their focus is overly... On ambitious food, the restaurant is not pleasant. And then then it closes, and then there's no more chef to make no more like ambitious food, you know? So we always had a deep respect for French cooking and a love for French cooking, but I don't think we opened this restaurant to make food shine, you know?
1: No, it was a steak. We knew the playlist. Steak, a good chicken, a good halibut, a good dozen oysters, no aspirations anything, but just to do a steak properly. With we knew the nothing. color
2: of the floor, bull's blood red before we ever knew the menu. You know, we forgot to plan a dessert on the opening day. A baked apple, you know, stuffed with its
1: peels and walnuts and brown sugar and butter was enough. I said, I'd eat that. But while everybody else, you have to think of the time though, 15 years ago, it was square plates, squiggly lines of balsamic vinegar, Towers were still in, and we were, like, buying the shittiest plates, glasses, forks, and knives. Those two things we wanted to do properly. Food, wine, the rest, not interesting. But still, it, was, it
0: was awesome, though. And it still is awesome, but then it was different because no one knew how to describe it.
1: Yeah, people didn't know when they showed up at the restaurant, you know, they were like, can I have, yeah, you know, we, was, we said no a lot, which was odd, you know, where we came in restaurants where if people wanted chicken fingers at 1130 at night. We had to say yes because they'd bought a magnum of Grey Goose vodka. And uh
2: Yeah, we made onion soup. We made like everything on the spot in our previous life but to accommodate. The, Fred the cooked
1: anyway. for me kind of at the restaurant. Like he based the menu on things that I liked kind of and then vice versa. It was more about like. I'd love a hot chicken sandwich. If I had said that three days on Monday afternoon on Wednesday evening, Fred had a hot duck sandwich, but there'd be, you know, fava beans instead of green peas. And they, you had the
0: little garden grow in the back.
1: Yeah. The garden got bigger it and got bigger. Big. And
0: Fred was making equipment in the back. It was just, it was like, also like Roberta's before Roberta's and prune in Montreal. It was Something that I had never seen before, and I just loved you guys for everything you were doing. And I immediately came back, and I was like, this restaurant is amazing.
2: Yeah, Have to I here. remember at that time when you said that, I forgot where it was, and you said it's your, uh, maybe on your MySpace page, <laughs> but you said it's my favorite restaurant. Yeah, and nobody, felt you we said weren't. two places, right? yeah. yeah
1: David Chang's two favorite restaurants you've never heard of.
2: And then and it like, was Joe Beef and Noma. And I, <laughs> I remember, I remember feeling like <laughs> nobody had ever heard of Noma for real. <laughs> Such an imposter being, being alongside Renee on the list, you know, oh this was like in like,
1: Montreal or the, the the province of Quebec actually as a whole, probably owes you a kind of medal of valor. <laughs> no, Yeah. On. Yeah. To you and Tony, because you know what? Till you came up there and started making bold statements like that for 13, 14 years ago in the press. Down here, the furthest place, like American food media, Bon Appetit magazine, Food & Wine, Washington Post, New York Times, Gourmet even, was still around, wouldn't write about Quebec unless it was like a Christmas special yeah, with sure a turkey on the right cover, right? Vermont was the no- most northern place in the world, according to American food media. It's only kind of after your statements and then being— seconded kind of by Tony's statements, was all of a sudden, now we had the Washington Post in our restaurant based on your comments. And we had the Philadelphia Inquirer in our restaurant based on your comments. Then we were having Bon Appetit in our restaurant based on your comments, food and wine. And then they wouldn't only come for Joe Beef, then they would go to Pierre de Cochon, they would go to L'Express, they would go to Walensky's, they would go... And then all of a sudden, there seemed to be an awakening almost in food tourism in Montreal. But I hate to say it, Dave, and I know you hate a compliment, but you know you sparked it somewhat. It's as if you told the writers, hey, uh, there's something north of Vermont. You guys should check it out. They speak French there too, by the way. And
2: there's all these old French restaurants.
0: I guess I was just shocked as to how it was hard to find information about food in Montreal other than— the fanciest. Yeah, the the state
2: sponsored websites and the hotel restaurants and, and stuff. And it was like more
0: that. than the sort of the extreme de cochon stuff, right? Yeah. Foie, duck, and a can type of stuff. There was, it was food that you wanted to eat every day. And it was celebratory and it was normal, whether it was bagels or Schwartz's or whatever. Even the Chinese restaurant we'd go out to eat at at night. It was just a, a good place to eat and to hang out. But like the thing is, and I'm, I'm not trying to give you guys handjobs here. I'm simply saying when people would ask me, and I'm just trying to dial back how it all transpired. When people ask me, where do you want to eat? Or why do you love Montreal so much? I would say like my favorite meals of like the past five, 10 years have happened in Montreal. I don't know how you define a restaurant. I think I was just trying to redefine how you would question how do you enjoy a restaurant? Is it the meal or is how you leave the fucking place?
1: I'll speak outside of just what Fred and I do, but what we do is we've also learned it. There is, in the French-Canadian mentality of kind of running these restaurants, we've learned deep hospitality in other restaurants. Even Pierre Cochon has deep hospitality. L'Express has deep hospitality. Also, that's driven by somewhat of a deep insecurity. We really badly need and want you to have had a really wonderful meal and not hate us. Not hate us. And we're also interested kind of in who we're cooking for. I'm fascinated by the dining audience that we have in the restaurant. I want to meet the doctor, the lawyer, the surgeon, the musician, uh, the hockey player, on and on and on. So the restaurants are small enough that we can provide somewhat of, uh, I hate to say curated, I'll say manicured. Bespoke bespoke experience because we'd like to get on first name basis with the customer as quick as possibly, get rid of all pretense, try to make them understand that luxury for us is
2: not important, and we'll get to the important things of eating and drinking pretty quickly and enjoying your dining companion. just look at the way like a lot of restaurants do the ultimate goal in service, particularly is to be as distant. And unobtrusive as possible, you know, that that's wrong. It's like, once you're really good, you have no more personality, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, like you've made it. They can't hear you.
1: I love when the wait staff is like writing down lists for the customer in transit of where else they should be going you know, this handwritten list of eight things. You should check out this place for bedwear, this place for underwear. It's all made here. You should check out this store for coffee. I'll be there tomorrow morning. So if you want to have a coffee with me tomorrow morning, I'll be there between 10 and 11. You should absolutely check out the express, you know, like these little pieces of paper that the waitstaff hands out to the customers, sending them actually away from our company into restaurants that people own that I might even have enemies in is great. You know, it's fine. It's community effort
0: somehow. I mean, that's the thing. It's a sense of community. Yeah. And eating at your restaurants is fun, but it's also delicious. But, I mean, I see how you treat everyone differently. It's just cool because you're just being you.
1: You know, though, we've kept it small and, like, close to the plate. And, you know, it's often Fred and I worry about you.
0: Yeah. 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 We'll get there. (laughs) We'll talk about that in a
1: second. (laughs) How do you uh, handle the volume? (laughs)
0: I don't know, man.
1: I remember when you opened Australia, Fred was like, what's he doing? And then you opened LA and we're like, what's he doing? And then,
0: you know. I mean, all your places are like right next to each other. <laughs> yeah. And it's a community.
1: Well, it's neat. We can walk from one place to the other. We have a place now in Little Italy called, uh, which is the furthest from our restaurant. It's so far that Fred and I even never get out there.
2: So now we're 15 minutes in traffic to get to from Joe Beef. And it's like the other day. five kilometers away. <laughs> Yeah, Montreal's pretty bad nowadays. Oh
0: man, it's been too long for me to get up there. I have no excuse. Um, and thanks for taking care of my wife when she came up. She she didn't even. How'd you find her? Uh, we're good. We. Have oh fun. my god. She was just eating there on her own without. Well, her, she had
2: those two guys uh, with suits and uh, clear <laughs> plastic earpiece next to her.
1: Yeah, Chad the Mumafuku baseball cap and T-shirt and
2: hoodie. Yeah, that's it, and the two security guards, uh, Secret Service.
0: Um, we'll get. Let's get to that in a bit. I, I want to go back a little bit before that, uh, before my own fucking stupidity of how I've run my business, um, because I think it's important for people, especially. We have a lot of different people that listen to this show, a lot of cooks, but a lot of people that want to learn more about cooking, just a lot of people that just care about cultural things, but. A lot of cooks. And I'm always going to care mostly from a cook's perspective. You guys paid your dues first and foremost. You worked your asses off. You spent time abroad. You learned how to cook French food.
2: Uh, I don't wish it on anybody anybody to learn the way we learn.
1: Yeah, our apprenticeship Uh, was medieval. My apprenticeship was medieval. I couldn't even. And it's time for all of
0: us. We don't have to get into the specifics, but medieval, like, How?
1: It might as well have been 1930, I guess. You know, I've had, I've taken beatings. I've had cigarettes put out on me. I've had, I've been snapped behind the head. I've been punched in the ribs during service. I've been belittled, verbally abused, mentally abused. I've worked for racist men, for anti-Semitic men, like top chefs, like worldwide serious dudes, like just, you know, Gestapo mouths and I don't know you know uh, it took us a long we're just actually scratching the surface these days about what happened what a fucking traumatic fucking. how many guys
2: you know that like like? how many guys we know that like got shot somehow we used to cook for like because mm-hmm. it was a restaurant we don't choose to you know ally with them or anything but how many people we know that committed suicide how many people you know it's sub- a deep deep substance abuse problem it's a tough environment man
0: But you guys were probably the first people in Lucky Peach that even spoke about it.
2: Yeah, maybe, yeah.
0: And have been like vocal about the past and to be transparent about, hey, we make mistakes, but we're trying to get better as individuals. But for me, the problem that I continue trying to explain, because I'm not trying to rationalize uh, what happened, because a lot of people are like, why would you stay in that environment? Why would you stay in those environments?
1: I
2: would say that, Stockholm syndrome.
1: Cooking at that level, though, you know, early on, to get anywhere, it's a militarized apprenticeship somehow, you know? You don't only drink the Kool-Aid, you believe in the Kool-Aid, and you give out the Kool-Aid as well. It's a cult. Yeah, exactly. You know, you look at Chef bokus and the cover, his majestic chef whites and the tall chef hat on the front of the book. You know, I, I had that book in my possession when I was 14 years old. And I knew then I wanted La Cuisine du Marché, Paul Bocuse. I, I wanted to be that, you know. And I worked for different chefs. And and the mantra was, I work longer than you. I work faster than you. I'm better at you than cleaning fish. I'm faster than you. I clean better than you. You can't burn me out. I am indestructible. No, and then I'll you I'll start be there
2: before you and I'll leave after I'll you. I'll destroy you.
1: I will take your job. I'm on fish. I want to be on meat. I will. I will destroy you. I will come before you. I will finish later than you. I will clean your station. I will. I will. Dis- like,
0: but is that is that feeling still like entrenched in your brain somehow? Yeah,
1: the relics
2: of it. I'm still the super PTSD.
1: competitive. I'm always watching and scanning the next up and comers who's opening near me. Uh, I try now to realize that I'm doing it. You know, I'm always trying not to manipulate to be angry to one up people, you know, like, but it's there, you know, that killer instinct that you, Navy <laughs> SEAL Michelin yeah. training is, is
0: there. It's hard to explain, even though we didn't work together or just around the world, cooking changed, not overnight. It happened over a period of years. There's no way you could even explain this to anyone that no. wasn't part of it.
1: No, no. I talked about it in rehab recently. Like, you know, there was me. I went to rehab, like, last year, and we kind of did this, like, backwards inventory of my childhood and then my career. (laughs) And they made me write a whole bunch of things down about, you know. And the therapists were just like, this really happened to you? I go, yeah. But didn't you – why didn't you leave? I go, because – because I loved working in that restaurant. You know, it was like, I needed it for my CV. Like there was no way I was leaving and there's no way I was letting those people win. I needed that restaurant on my CV to go on to the next restaurant,
2: period. And you know, sometimes people had to, there was a pressure in certain community and families to have like a good job and go to university. I think there was an era when we grew up, it's like, it was imperative to be passionate, you know, like I'm going to do what I want to do and I'm going to put all my hours into that. But the the risk with that, it's it's like being in a binge. It's like a really big high. It's like when you're really passionate about something for 10, 15 years, then you're not, you know, and then what else, you know, you can't just do an eight hour shift anymore.
1: When I walked out of the restaurants, we both kind of walked out as the company grew We were forced kind of like to stop working five days a week to kind of write a book, to uh, go open another restaurant, to do media stuff, to go do a show, you know. So we were kind of like made redundant inside of the restaurants to be able to do media work and fill the restaurants, right? Because that's all of a sudden what the industry was demanding of us. When we were finally made redundant of the restaurants, I started realizing that I hadn't seen a hockey game in 22 years. I hadn't been out on Valentine's Day in 25 years. I hadn't been to the movie theater since E.T. You know, there was this all, I'd never taken a walk on the mountain in Montreal. I hadn't swam in a lake in a decade. I hadn't gone foraging for mushrooms In 15 years You know it's like And all of a sudden I'm redundant And now I'm swimming in a lake And it was like did I just get out of jail Like I might as well have been in Supermax yeah. Like the kitchen A white tiled room With stainless steel And just staring at a pan And a 12 burner stove For 18 hours a day is like something else, you know.
2: But then you 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 know the thing too is, is you're in the lake, but then there's your phone, and that same jail is still there, right?
1: The restaurant's the, the, never the, closed. The
2: jail, the jail is not the tile and the stainless steel and the six burner garland anymore. This is not the shackles anymore. It's the same feeling of having to show up early, like of your boss looking over your shoulder. You're, it never leaves, you know. And and had I known maybe that that's what it meant to be a an obsessive character or maybe perhaps sometime perfectionist. I would have tried to heal that in my youth and have a, a milder beginning, you know?
0: To be a little bit more well-adjusted.
2: Yeah, and I wish, like, now we can't go back in time. In fact, restaurants is the only machine to time travel, right? You can build a restaurant. It's the only place you can time travel. But what we can do is we can tell the kids, like, in the restaurant, take four days this week. You know, like, like go to the country. David lends his summer house, you know, David.
0: He's lent it to me. I still haven't taken it.
2: Yeah, you have credit. <laughs> I have a farm now come to that <laughs> right in Vermont, right in the border of Vermont. And the the thing too, you know, it's really funny that I noticed too in the media the last few years is this sudden interest in the working conditions of cooks, but that went on from the previous year, just uh, incensing and and just praising the restaurant where the cooks did internship. In charcuterie, and they add like a butter program, <laughs> and so un- until a moment they rate you, they evaluate you, they they put you, they number you in a list according to how many fun and and complicated things you do, and then the next year, well, that's it's even harder do.
1: now if you think about it. If we if it's like the three of us here, we're going to open a restaurant in New York now. Dave Chang and the Joe Beef Boys are opening in New York City, forty seats. It's almost unbearable. Do you imagine what we'd have to do? We would have to make all of the bread every day, maybe four times a day. We would have to make all the butter in-house. We would have to, like, it's just the amount of skill and amount of steps. The beef, just the beef program is a nightmare. Just the fish program is a nightmare. Just sourcing seafood that every other restaurant doesn't have in the city is a nightmare. Like, literally Everything on the menu, if we were to open anything, is a complete nightmare it's now. It's never
2: been so good for customers and diners. <laughs> yeah. I think it's the best. Do you Foods, remember like 20 years ago? The best time ago, to eat of so all good. time. So good, 20 oh, years ago, penne with pink sauce, man, or pesto. Got away know? with it. Rack of lamb <sighs> from New Zealand, man. Like farm salmon tartare with like deep fried <sighs> chips.
1: Also, the customer now has gotten used to having everything under the sun available. At a restaurant, you see? Like, I remember the days before wild mushrooms, before mescaline salad mix was available, before we could Chives was a tall order, you know? Now it's like the the consumer is used to getting foie gras whenever he wants, caviar whenever he wants, uh, lobster whenever he wants, any species of crab whenever he wants, abalone. All of these things are completely available. Fred said something brilliant a couple of weeks ago. We were talking, what were the, the- going back
2: to the little table d'hôte restaurant. Yeah, yeah, well, Chez Panisse. And, and you do that, like, a set menu is the only way, the math. Like, we take our pastry chef or our manger or whoever in the kitchen right now in all our restaurants. Take that person who has to make five desserts for what, you know. It doesn't matter if you have 25 desserts, you're going to end up eating one. And make a beautiful tartos abricots asacienne or something like that. You make four that day. You make them perfectly. There's no stress, no having to spin ice cream in the middle of chicken stock, in the middle of this. To go back to the, you remember like super salad or terrine, uh, halibut
0: or... We're headed back
1: there. I think so. We are headed back yeah. there.
0: Whether people realize it or not.
1: Cheese or strawberry tart or get out.
2: Think about it. What's What, what other business where you can... Buy for thirty dollars something that's been made by hand by people, like within ten kilometers of you. You know, like there's no other business. Shoemaker, off. You know, like you want to buy new cabinets if if they make it with real wood by hand. You're gonna spend a lot of money. Buy chairs,
0: knives, rarely. That's why I believe that the restaurants that are going to be successful are going to be the ones where it's a it's a grab for like knowledge and intuition, right? Like. Sushi, right? You're not gonna go to a crappy sushi spot. You're gonna go to a place where the guy's been doing it for 30 years. I do have like hope that craft will come back.
2: We have a we have a friend. He's a he helped us build a bar. He built a bar actually at Joe Beef, the first bar, all the bars and all the restaurants. And he's a, a sculptor, and he makes a nice wooden waves. You know, you've seen them in a, a few pictures we have in the books. And he said to me, he's like, the waves are six thousand dollars now, not because it takes me two days to make a wave. It doesn't take me two days to make a wave. He says, Tabarnat, it took me 25 years to get to two days to make a wave, you know? So I, I think we, like David said about like Piet Cochon, like Sugar Shack, or most of these restaurants are more akin to like installation art. Right. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: yeah then they
2: are. are good, art, uh, art grants to open some restaurants. Some,
0: someone told me recently, and I got really upset about it, And now I'm upset maybe because they might be right. Because I hate when other people in culture say, cooks or chefs are artists. Yeah. But the person that told me this is very smart. And I trust their opinion. And maybe I was getting upset because maybe they were right. Are we the modern day pop artist, right? Doing these installations that are ephemeral and... We don't get paid, and no one does. No one knows what the fuck we're actually thinking.
1: Because it's not necessarily people base like the artist comment on how you treated Halibut. What they don't understand is like the chair, the table, the way the bar was designed, the atmosphere, the lighting. We soundproof the ceiling at extraordinary cost. The playlist, like it's a, it's it's a, That's it's an art installation. Absolutely, of the menu, the to build a of small restaurant. You know, it's your personal vision, your first restaurant.
0: Yeah. I, I, and you have to have something to say.
1: The most satisfying part of the restaurant business for Fred and I is like building it. After all, once we start operating it, then it's what? Then it's just being the bosses of the cleaning crew, you know, making sure. They I, made a
2: dish too, you know, like making the lobster spaghetti the first week was exciting. And now <laughs> it's the bane of our existence. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so what's, maybe we're just fucking artists. <laughs> Yeah, I
2: know. Yeah, yeah. And we're
0: so and narcissistic, we can't see that.
2: I feel the same when people say that, because it's true. You know, it's like oh, the plate is your canvas, and the fish is your brushes. Like well, I'm and director of-, of the,
1: I'm a custodian, chef custodian.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think we're just too close to it to even see what the fuck it is. But there's something going on. Uh, it doesn't make too much sense to me right now. But I, things are off in the restaurant industry to me, obviously. <clears throat> How off? pretty far off, but I don't know what the correction is. So I, I tend to joke to myself because it's a, like, not a fun thing to talk about too much that for the restaurant industry to get better, food's going to get worse.
1: Yeah. I've thought that often. So people are going to have to lower their expectations if they really want the kitchen culture to change, and they want wellness for the people that work 16 hours a day to produce delicious food for them, they're going to have to expect less options. So they're going to have a- to expect four appet choice of four
2: appetizers, four main ki- courses, dessert or cheese. Which is sh- shitty by media
0: standard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or non-inventive. Yeah. Yeah.
2: We'll have to forego the
1: psalm. We'll have to forego uh, half a million dollars of inventory of wine in the basement. I'm pretty sure, though, you know, when you go to the restaurant, you only drink one bottle of wine or two. I don't know. Like people, still, Why do you need a phone book?
0: Exactly. And the critics, and I know this because there has been articles written, at least here in America, the death of the pastry chef. And pastries across the board are, are worse than ever before. Pastry what
2: if- was never a dessert. Like if you look in France, like you eat with friends in in Paris, like nobody eats a pastry for dessert. Like bistros and brasseries have kitchen desserts: creme caramel, sliced oranges. The math you will know, never it's...
1: work, though. Anyway, what do you sell dessert for now? Ten bucks, I guess. It doesn't fucking work. A th- Like watch this: a hundred desserts. You're in the weeds. If me and you have to make 100 desserts for tonight, we're in the weeds right now. All three right now are in the weeds. Rice
0: pudding. Okay.
1: Yeah. (laughs) But that's it. So 100 desserts that we sell, and that's a lot of desserts, times 10 bucks, it's $1,000. doesn't come close to covering labor cost, ingredients, or the time.
0: And the ingenuity, and you have to make it original, and all this shit. And I'm okay with getting-
2: plateware. Really
0: delicious, simple things- like pudding. What's uh, wrong with the fucking pudding?
2: Is David Chang going back to the fig on the plate? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree with that.
1: Listen, it's that, all your fault, kind of though. You've made this complicated, you know, a little bit. Like you know,
0: a, a lot of things are my fault.
1: Yeah. Let's just let's just let's just reel it back a little bit there.
2: You know, I, like, there used to be a restaurant. <laughs> There's still a restaurant in uh, in Maine, in Portland, called Four Street. And if there was ever a restaurant, it's that great the, restaurant, great, yeah, and particularly when uh, Sam, Hayward Sam Hayward was there and, and I oh, sold it. Okay. And uh, but when we were kids, he was like 60 for like seasonal, like you went there, you ate Portland, Maine, the 16th of July. That's what, that's what your plate was. That's what your food was. That's what your waitress was. If you ate there in October, you ate Portland that day of October. That was like, it embodied time, place and, and people and culture of, of Portland. And, It's what's great about French cooking is like, oh, it's spring. Let's have les asperges, you know, let's not have les asperges all the time. You know, let's have foie gras around Christmas. Let's have oysters in season. Let's have, As a great thing with that is that you don't get bored with foie gras because you have to wait another year before you have it again.
1: Foie gras is nice at Christmas in December. In August, it's stupid.
2: (laughs) No, really like, like like
1: blistering hot. The AC's not working in the restaurant. And these kids are taking pictures of each other eating slabs of foie gras in
2: August. It's like we're like the Romans. You but know, foie like,
0: doesn't even impress cooks anymore that no. come in. Like, what does? I don't know. But I, I, I use that as a benchmark because I remember looking at cookbooks and like, I wonder what that tastes like. How do you clean it? What do you mean there's a left and right lobe and they're different? What the fuck is hot? What does a hot lobe taste like? I didn't. I didn't – when I finally tasted it, I was like, oh, my God. This is the greatest fucking thing. Animal butter. Yeah. (laughs) And now I don't even love foie, but, like, that sense of wonderment. Because I didn't even – there was no videos for me to find. Now, when I ask Young Cooks because they clean it at Co or any of our restaurants that serve it, they're just like, whatever. I've had this a thousand times already somewhere. I'm like, oh, my God. (laughs) This is crazy. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah. And then people – only eat it a certain way. There's only one way I'll have my sweetbreads. There's only, like, I think we've, as a species, we've become very, very complicated in our food choices. And maybe that's a signal that. My we dad, have to my dad used to get an orange
1: for Christmas. Like that's when you'd have an orange at Christmas. That was a big
0: deal. So basically, are we saying capitalism ultimately ruined food?
2: <clears throat> and environment think about what, what's the solution to you know it's like we change cars every three years or four years you know like we change phones every two years it's just i think we just the machine has gone too fast now the gears are getting uh
0: so before all those things and the environment and capitalism and all that shit fucking breaks is the culinary industry going to break because of the cook It'll get to a point where we have no- First and foremost, mm-hmm. right?
1: Yeah. It'll get to a point where we know, know once the, the cat's out of the bag, this was driven, right? A lot of people went into kitchens because of the dawn of Instagram, the Food Network, cookbooks. But as, as the cat's released from the bag, people realize just it won't be, we're going to have harder and harder and harder time. People are going to move on to something else. They're going to lose interest
0: with this. Before we go on, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's episode of the Day Chang Show is brought to you by Brilliant Earth. Brilliant Earth is the global leader in ethically sourced fine jewelry. Create your own custom engagement ring right on their website by picking from a variety of ethically sourced diamonds, gemstones, metal types, and settings. I really wish that I had Brilliant Earth when I was getting my engagement ring for my wife. Brilliant Earth also offers wedding rings, vintage pieces, and many other handcrafted jewelry items, with exclusive, unique designs you can't find anywhere else. Brilliant Earth is passionate about cultivating a more transparent, sustainable, and compassionate jewelry industry. They go above and beyond the current industry standards to offer beyond-conflict-free diamonds, along with fine jewelry crafted from recycled precious metals. They even donate 5% of profits to help build a brighter future in communities impacted by the jewelry industry. Outstanding and highly personalized customer service is a hallmark of Brilliant Earth shopping experience. To make your Brilliant Earth purchasing experience as stress-free as possible, they offer free shipping and returns on all US, UK, and Canadian orders. To enjoy free shipping and returns on any of Brilliant Earth's fine jewelry selections, just visit brilliantearth.com/chang. That's brilliantearth.com/chang, C H A N G. And now, back to the show. I didn't mean to take it down this level <laughs> so fast, but I, I, I really wanted to get to this part and get your thoughts on it in that 20, 30 years ago, again, minimum 15 years ago, you didn't know what happened at the end of a culinary career.
1: None of us do, do we?
0: No, but think about that. This is the first time ever, really ever, because like Soltner and that whole generation, Bakus just passed that you're going to be able to find what happens at the end of a culinary cycle line, right? The whole fucking spiel. And you're going to see like, is it worth it or not?
2: Are we the, the, we're the Guinea pigs. Yeah.
0: And I'm on, I'm younger than you guys by a little bit, but like, we're going to be able to see our mentors and like, was it worth it? And I don't think the answer is going to be any
2: in the, in politics. You see that as a possibility. What do you mean? Guys like Tom Calico. Oh um, and-
0: you know what? Maybe. You know what I mean? I, I don't know. But I'm simply saying, like, if you were, I always think about two guys, Christian Deluvier and and Gray Coons at L'Espinas, two of the greatest chefs America's ever had. I don't know where they're at. But they're not like, God, I hope they're living by the beach, retired and happy. But what if what if they're not? What if they're not? Yeah. And we're not the, we're not telling those sad stories. And what we need is people entering this profession with wide eyes, knowing what's in store.
1: I'll say this. I'll speak openly. I've been thinking, you know, um, I'll be 50 next year. And I've been toying with the idea of selling off some of my shares in some of the restaurants that Fred and I own. Uh, And I look at what those numbers would look like, and it's not much money at all, you know? So, like, I'm wondering, what do I do? Do I just, like, sit on this steady income? I have this weird feeling that it was cool. People liked to see me in the dining room when I was 30, when I was 35, when I was 45. But I don't know if I'll look so cool in the dining room five more years from now at 55, you know? Uh, I wonder sometimes if it's not, I sh- we should not, Fred and I should have this conversation about beginning to, like we began to talk about opening a restaurant, if we should begin to talk about closing a restaurant, yeah, if we like should begin to talk 50, about 16, selling you know, a restaurant, if we should begin to talk about getting rid everything of Everything
0: a- ends. I've always been paranoid about what's around the corner. And I never think anything around the corner is good. <laughs>
2: <Ever>. <laughs> that made you who you are, though. That that, that That's what, like... Everybody in the dining room is there to fuck you. So you're going to make sure that you do the best you can to give them the best time ever. Make the food like a little bit better and a little bit like you're not.
0: But it's still so unhealthy, man. It's so unhealthy.
2: For a person in his life, outside of the kitchen, it's dark. Those traits of character that makes you a great person in this industry until like 35 or 40 make you a horrible, suffering human being after that. Yeah,
0: I love that. And it's
2: an industry that has absolutely zero. And culinary school should start with, like, allergies, Heimlich Maneuver, and Alcoholic Anonymous, and, like, conflict resolution, and, like, conversational skills, you know? The last
0: thing you need to worry about is cooking.
2: Oh, yeah. (laughs) I mean,
0: it's it's, it's real.
1: Cooking's the easiest part of what we do.
0: Now? But no one fucking told us, hey, this is how you should talk to someone. (laughs) I mean, again, people... It's so hard for me to explain to anyone that's not in this that that was the way it was. Yeah, man,
2: it's like learning parenting from the Sopranos, you know? It's it's perhaps not the best way to learn to run a business is not to learn it in a kitchen. So it's
0: not a surprise that we've had this reckoning moment. Mm -hmm. And it's been positive, I think, right? Because people are more aware and it has to change. And it's been well overdue, but no one gave a shit about this for years.
1: We also come from the time, though, of you would go to a restaurant, you would go to eat at La Grenouille, you would eat your food, and you would leave. And then guys like you ultimately came along, and other people where you would go eat the food of David Chang. You see what I'm saying? You would, Joe Beef was an idea, it was, but it's Fred and Dave at Joe Beef. Gramercy Tavern, but who, you know, Gramercy Tavern is funny because it opened and it was Gramercy Tavern. and People would go eat at Gramercy Tavern, but then eventually people would go eat. Mike Anthony's food. Right. You know, and then Tom Colicchio became a household name and like a lot I was of. I there sh-
0: to see that whole thing happen for Tom.
1: We heard about Noma, 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 Noma for, in its infancy, when nobody knew about it, we knew the word Noma. It's only afterwards that we knew, know the name Redzepi.
2: Yeah, brands are very, very important now, you know, just. We're amazed every time we come in the city. We're the supreme store lineup.
0: But going back to this, to where we started, you, you, you asked me a question about where I'm at, where you guys are at. What's at the end, right? You're contemplating selling your business because at the end of the day, like, what are you going to do? You can't do this forever. And we are probably at the tail end of that first generation, probably second generation where younger cooks are seeing our every move as to what is in store for them. And yeah. they're
2: much smarter than we are. That generation too. Yeah, oh, yeah. They're educated, well read, well schooled.
1: They don't see race. They don't see religion. They don't. They're a lot, a lot brighter. I, I live by the strength of the kids that work in the kitchen. If anything, Riyadh said. Well, he goes, I see how you're playing this game. I go, the kids are keeping you alive, and you're the old vampire drinking their blood. <laughs> and I go, well, I'd be. An asshole, if I said that I don't learn a ton of stuff from the young kids that work in the restaurants, as far as music, as far as fashion, as far as you know, interpersonal relationships, the kids are a lot brighter than I was at that age. What
0: changed? Because you guys obviously changed after the globe, right? That shit yeah. fucking broke you guys. I didn't have that moment until six years ago. Um, even though I should have, what made you guys, maybe what,
2: having kids, maybe having kids, maybe just,
0: what made you realize that the way I did in the past doesn't work
2: anymore? You know, man, it's, it's not that long. We're not here for that long, man. So can you stay angry? Can you stay stubborn? Can you stay closed with your own old School ideas about the way you did it and everything and keep your shutters, you know, like we have what, like 20 years left, you know, 30 years. I don't want to micromanage the
1: past till I have heart problems and then I won't get to go to a beach and I won't get to swim in a lake. Like, I'd like to... All of these things that I've been selling to people, forage, mushrooms, gardening, vegetables, organic apples, natural wine, all of these things, mm-hmm. um, I want to kind of do those things. I want to sell all the idealisms of the things that we preach in the kitchen. You know, I want to visit the lamb farm a lot more often. I want to go learn more about rabbits. I want to see the ducks before they enter in, in a box in the fridge. You know,
0: I mean, I was with you when you uh, had your first kid. You already had two daughters. Correct. I guess that was something I couldn't understand until now. Right. Oh, you're gonna have a big wake up call soon. I'm, I'm looking. I I'm, can't wait for that wake up call. Right. Because the only thing I've ever cared about was work. Right. Really. You'll never get that back. That, And I can't wait to never get it back. <laughs> but what are you going to do? You've you've
1: woven yourself a pretty complicated web at this point.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I've done a lot to figure out how to get better, how not to fucking get shingles again. And, and I've been every kind of bad boss possible. And I've been also great at times and bad at times. But what I've realized is I have to be the best version of myself. And... And this is no joke. When we wrote about it again in Lucky Peach a while back, like it sounds insane, but I need to think about metaphors and examples. Like whether it's religious or even like Star Wars type shit, it's like as a cook, we are trained to always go after the most difficult fucking thing. Right? You never want to learn be, to be lazy.
2: Yeah, we're addicts. Right? We're, like we, we constantly are behavior. forcing
0: ourselves – for the most difficult fucking thing, always. And I kept on thinking about it. I'm like, man, when something goes wrong or if I'm fucking um, not prepared enough or whatever, ultimately I've realized all the shit is on me and I have to accept responsibility for it. But the fact of the matter is, it's easy for me to get angry. It's really hard for me to be patient and to step back and to look at all the things and, and to have a deeper understanding and to realize... That if I act on my my, my my first impulse and I'm not thoughtful, like, that's, that's not the as, kind of uh, cooking I want to
2: be. Repair has legit views on that day.
0: He's, yeah, man. He's, he's worked hard to be a Buddhist.
2: Yeah. And you said it worked.
0: It works. Yeah. And I get mad at myself. But also, I think the difference with me, I mean, the, you guys had been trying to get help, you know, for a long time. You've been open about it.
1: I, it got worse for me before it got better. When I spoke of the Lucky Peach thing, it still took four or four, five more years after that article to actually go to It was locked funny. rehab,
0: you know. It was a lot of drinking. I but mean, it, some of the best nights of my life were the most drunk nights at your restaurant.
1: You know, I felt that I had a social responsibility to drink with absolutely every visiting chef that ever stepped into the restaurant. You may not
2: remember that. Before, I think it's the night before we opened Joe Beef. You said... I'll put my liver on the bar for the business, you know? And that was the state of mind where we thought it was like an old Irish pub where you have to entertain. And and that was just my... And you were
0: great at it. (laughs) You were fucking great at it. But at what cost? Right. Right?
2: But you know, like, what other personality could do a 15, 16-hour shift and like 300 chicken thigh service than an addictive personality. Right? Like this is a, you have to be a drunk to put yourself through that.
1: It was a show. It was like a Broadway show that never ended. You know, the other day someone said to me, how are you, Dave? You're good. And I said, yeah, I'm good. And they said to me, "Um, you don't know my name, do you? And I was like, yeah. I'm sorry. Like, you're right. If you've been working here for two years, I see you every second day. I say hi to you. But right now, at this moment in time, I do not know your name. I felt like shit. You know, it's awful.
0: I know that feeling well. And I swore I'd never be that asshole that didn't know the fucking names of everyone. And I've become the asshole that I never wanted to be. And I
1: would have been so offended as a young line
0: cook if my chef didn't know my name. Oh, my fucking God. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Because why am I killing myself here?
1: This guy doesn't even know my name. The and shit like, talk
0: that I would do to myself. Holy hell. My God. Yeah. <laughs> it's enough to make you steal a steak
1: at night or a <laughs> bottle of wine if it's anywhere near your backpack. But it's the burdens of responsibility somewhat. And I tell myself that.
0: No one prepared you for this burden? No, no, no- one fucking prepared you? Listen, it's not about like I feel like sh- people should feel bad for you, but. How do you get better at it? How do you excel? And you talk about PTSD. I never thought about PTSD until you brought it to my attention. And you talk about payroll. I know that feeling. I don't know exactly how you feel it, but I know that feeling. And I know that every email I get at a certain hour.
1: You, you just feel the spike in your heart skips a beat sometimes.
0: I'm carrying two phones right now, not to look like an asshole because I'm trying to wean myself off and just to have one normal phone so I never have to look at the other phone and like once a fucking day.
2: Oh, like the guys in El Chapo.
0: Oh, really? I didn't even- <laughs> do
2: you have one that's with a big antenna? Satellite
0: <laughs> because like, I think the stress for me is real. And it's it's something that I'm learning to to finally address after all these years. Because I can't drink it away anymore. And I can't do drugs anymore. Right?
2: Yeah. And I, I think we just have to reassess what baseline S- situation and feeling is, you know, maybe – Food is just salt and pepper and tasty, but not like, whoa, did you see what they put on there? Maybe a good swim at the lake is what's the best part of your life. Maybe just a good night's sleep is good. It's part of the stuff you were telling me, you know, just maybe finding boring okay.
1: I learned a lot of stuff in rehab, and I feel that when I came back to the restaurant, it actually, maybe I'm wrong to say, but it actually helped Fred a lot. And it actually helped a lot of the company. Just because you know alcohol is a medi- my medication, I was drinking medication, but I had never addressed why I, I needed this medication all the time. When I when I did finally do a long stint in rehab and go through an education about addiction and wellness, they taught me a lot of things just about being happy, being self centered a little bit more, uh, keeping it at sixty. Not being at 45, not going to 90, just like literally working every minute of the day to stay at 60 miles an hour, right? And when Fred joined me in sobriety, uh, I feel that it changed the company somewhat. When I became a kinder, gentler person, Fred became a kinder, gentler person. All the chefs de cuisines became kinder, gentler people, and it kind of trickled down the company and there's more or less it seems over the last year uh, a better vibe in the in the in the restaurants you know if the lead viking is getting hammered on magnums of wine and carrying on at all the bars every day it will lead everybody else to be vikings but if now the viking is into making sure that everybody being a, be- a better shepherd Of the team, people seem to take better care of themselves Mm. through osmosis. I don't
0: know. No, I I gave a talk at the welcome conference, and I've been I've been a lot more open about my shortcomings and what I've learned from them because I feel like a lot of people are watching, and and I think that it can be beneficial to someone. And thirty five was a horrible year in my life, and one of the things that came out of that was someone gave me an executive coach. Long story cut short, one of the things I took away, one of many was he like what do you want what do you want from your employees what do you what do you want them to get and then i was like i want them to be happy and he's like you're the most unhappy fucking person i've ever met <laughs> <laughs> he's like what do you know about happiness that anyone could ever learn from you and it fucking crushed me. It crushed me
1: it's, it's it's interesting though right
0: and he's like how can anyone know happiness if their boss doesn't know happiness, right? Like, why would they even want to emulate you? (laughs) I was like, fuck. Did you work on it? Oh, man, I've been working on this forever. And it's not like I didn't know that. And that's, I think, the hardest thing for me is that knowing and executing on what I know are two very different fucking things.
2: Yeah, we're really good at wording things properly and with therapists, you know, I can explain very, very well and make like very clever metaphors and everything, but like, I can't apply it, <laughs> you know?
0: And I'm very, uh, that's, that's what I, I'm, I always struggle with is I've known this the shit forever, but man, it takes time to find a way. And I'm, I'm, I've worked, I've had so much therapy. I'm not mad at myself for not instituting this shit earlier. It takes fucking time, man. And hearing you, Dave, and, and you Fred, about like where you're at now. I was like, well, how else are you going to get there unless you fucked it all up before? <laughs> that's just the truth of the matter.
1: But nobody, you know, we didn't know that we'd have seven places or six places or whatever. We didn't know we'd have three kids apiece. We didn't know we'd even have girlfriends, right? So, and we didn't know we'd make it this long. So, I guess you know, somehow, did you know you'd have? No, right?
2: Do you feel like an imposter in that sometimes?
0: Well, like, I I struggle with that a lot. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know if. Like people feel like it's hyperbole because I oftentimes speak in hyperbole, but I live my life in a way that I really didn't think I'd ever live past a certain age, and I, I really, you guys know that I didn't give a fuck. I cared so much that I didn't give a fuck.
2: Yeah, and And then and now that free time showed up.
0: Yeah, and and it it was like fuck, what am I supposed to do? How can I ruin it all? How can I fucking throw it all away and be unencumbered and be free from this responsibility? And all the other shit that I had in my goddamn head. And it's been a long road, man. It's been a long road. I fucked up my life so bad. It's taken me almost like six years to be at a good place now. And, you know, it's it's not been easy.
1: Some of the kids, some of the cooks, you know, when I talk about this stuff that I – you know, we had to Beef and the restaurants and books and Tony and friends of you and a bunch of other people, you know, they kind of like, wow, like you, you guys have had a terrific career. You like, I, I, it it kind of makes me think you're full of shit when you're complaining, you know, (laughs) because most people would have loved to have a career like you've had so far. And I'm like, Oh, you know, so it's kind of weird because I have to watch out as well. What I say in front of the kids.
2: It's it's no regrets, you know. Even like I love the two books. People love them, or at least what I read. And I'm like, oh, nah, it could have been thicker. We should have worked on that other chapter. It's 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 never. We were never one to celebrate anything. Joe Beef's open one year. Let's crack the champagne. We never did that, you know.
1: (laughs) I hate I hate that. No, never.
2: Like never once. We have a new book.
1: Don't no. Knock on wood. Say nothing. Uh, we're opening a new restaurant. Just open. We're not having an opening party. <laughs> Great, you're 81 on the top 100 list. Like, well, yeah, whatever. That's bullshit. Like, let's move on. Like, you know, like,
0: what's wrong with us? Why can't we celebrate? I don't know. Like, still. I mean, that's that's part of the problem.
2: Maybe. Well, because I I was talking about imposters. I also think sometimes that like, the, but we know that those lists are made out. You know, the the list they elect the voters, and and it's sponsored by. A water company. We
1: break it down. We look at it like it was a recipe. And I go, this recipe is bullshit. I go, I don't want to be a victim of marketing. And then we're like, oh, And then you, well, get,
0: you get higher on the list because you've been so honest about it. Yeah, <laughs> I know.
1: I go, I, I'm going to send them a lawyer's letter because I don't want them to mention us again.
0: So with all this doom and gloom, why should someone be positive about this profession?
2: <laughs> yeah, does this, is this going to come off really negative? Yeah, right? of course. Yeah.
0: It is. But guess what? You know what? <laughs> It needs to happen.
2: Schools have to change the game, man. I said it. They have have to put those like addiction warning, like like communications classes and stuff. How to conflict resolution. If they don't put that in now, like it's not going to help. It has to start in school, and everybody knows from there on. Not like caveman social skills anymore.
1: Hmm. Yeah, they have to take a very close look at addiction and interpersonal relationships and behaviors in the workplace. It's not up to me, someone who's not qualified, who owns a business to teach that, you know, who's qualified, who's educated in the restaurant business. What? Name me one chef who walked away from Yale or the university degree. That's a successful chef that has five restaurants. I don't know anybody. This is a metier, a business for misdiagnosed labor workers (laughs) that couldn't, Work in the, you know.
0: They couldn't get any other job. No. But now you have people that could get any job, but they want to cook.
2: For the first time, there's somebody, you must get those Instagram messages all the time. It's like, what advice would you give a young chef? I got one It was very interesting because they... The guy was a, a skilled tradesman. He, he's got his cards. Did you and, get that one? Yeah. From the
1: woodworker? Yeah. I told him, me, it was my dream to be a woodworker. You should yeah. stay a woodworker. I said, stay a woodworker because you're <laughs> like union, <laughs>
2: you? union card holding skilled carpenter. Spend your money on a hobby.
0: How come you never just dropped kitchen whites and got into welding and making shit? Because you're so good at and it, it You
2: know, when you start welding, then you have to start welding banisters. And you have to start welding like support beams. And that, you know when you get into cooking, then you could you just make to... like
0: smokers or shit. That's
2: but then true. It, it
1: that turns into business. B- no, it's, making smokers can quickly turn into cooking salmon on lentils. Once you've cooked a hundred salmon on lentils, you can't cook salmon on lentils anymore. Not all of the jobs eventually turn into the same quagmire. I think the, the all the restaurants turn into the same thing. Yeah,
2: we you just know? have to learn to be bored maybe early on do a job that pays that you're bored at and travel for food on the weekend
1: we still have one restaurant though on a positive note there's still a restaurant that we want to open I'm telling you Fred and I still have that little four tables of four little French restaurant open Wednesday Thursday Friday maybe (laughs) maybe Friday
0: can I I tell you so I was in Tokyo recently for uh, work and I finally got to go to this restaurant that I've always wanted to go to called Kyo Aji. And the chef is, I think, like 85, 86. And he only makes one fucking dish. But it's 12 seats. It's also the most fucking expensive restaurant (laughs) I've ever been to in my goddamn life. They only take cash. I didn't have any alcohol. And I think it was almost 600, no, 6,000, 60,000 yen. So it's like 600 fucking bucks. A person? I didn't even, yeah.
2: What's the food he makes? What's the dish?
0: It's a it's, uh, kaiseki cuisine done in Tokyo. And listen, I hate restaurants that are expensive. I hate it with the white hot heat. But man, just that fucking experience was so, it just, I loved it. It oh, gave me fucking right life. On. Here's the thing this goddamn restaurant. It's like uh, you know, it's just it's almost like a like an open kitchen, but there's like six cooks in there, and you can see that they've never left their fucking positions in like thirty fucking years. They're all like older, and there's some younger apprentices, and they're making beautiful, beautiful food with the best ingredients. But if you're have a Western palate, you may not like it, right? They're making this uncompromising Japanese food. When you sit down, the chef. Gives you a uh, uh, a giant giant napkin that's got the embroidery of the restaurant on it, and a bedazzled chain clip that's each unique. And he 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 puts it around your neck and he clips it on. And every and you, you all wait, and every single diner gets a bib. Nice. <sighs> I almost fucking cry. You get
1: to keep your bib?
0: No, uh-huh. I wanted to so bad. <laughs> Especially the chain. It's yeah. so nice. And I just wanted to cry. I was like, this is the kind of cooking that I want to be part of.
1: Maybe it's a means to an end, though. Maybe we're going off because I really like this four tables of four yeah. restaurant yeah. is maybe the light That's at the it. end of the tunnel. And yeah. he,
0: and, and it was like so expensive, right? I was doing the math lunch and dinner. I was like, fuck, like you could really make a nice dinner.
1: Like, if I'm gonna do something like that with Fred and we go back, it's gonna, at the end of my career, to open sixteen seats, one just we only do sixteen, and I'm going to do. I swear the best job I can. But you're gonna. It's gonna be
0: expensive. But f- I think it's here's here's the thing. This is a celebration of food and the people that eat there.
2: That's <laughs> a celebration of that guy. Yeah. No. 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 <laughs> it's, it's
0: really not in the in the way he only makes one dish. Is this dessert like cognac uh, noodles and this really dark sugar? And I had never seen that before. And, like, he's the only guy. And then you're like, oh, the reason he can make this is because, like, you need to be, like, making this for 50 years to learn all the intricacies of the most simplest dish. And you're there for, like, three hours. And you're having conversation. And they're engaging you. And it's just a fucking blast. But you can't make a reservation.
1: How do you get a reservation? You have to be invited.
0: By who? Him? No. No. By somebody else? But I, again, I don't know. You How have did you get, get invited? A friend invited me. But you can only… How did your uh, friend get invited? This is the thing. They're not giving the ability to make reservations to like the richest, the most powerful. The people that love to eat. Uh-huh. They're like the good people. And they are given the ability to… you guy's figured it out. Yeah. It's Valhalla. And, and, and like, I think also there's another restaurant. Maybe it's the same restaurant. And I know there's others up like it. You where- can
1: come based on your performance as an eater that loves food. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Fuck.
0: Smart. Blew my fucking mind. And so you,
1: the first time you go there, it's probably like an exam. Comment. Oh, man.
0: She was- <laughs> I was like, don't be fucking
1: late. You think you'll be invited be back?
0: Late? Yeah, I think so. Don't be late. And here's the thing. I don't love consper. I don't love Shiraku. I don't. And I don't love a lot of other things that I've always avoided whenever I've lived or eaten in Japan. I was like, I want to eat this shit and I'm going to love it because the last thing I want to do is disrespect anyone (laughs) or anything. And I'm going to eat all the shit I don't really normally want to eat because this is, this is eating. It's not dining. This is fucking eating food. Right. And like celebrating with your friends and People eat there uh, like two or three times a year because it's like almost like a reminder of like, this is how you do it. And there's no choice. There's no, you can choose your dessert at the end. And again, like I, there's a couple restaurants like, I know there are other restaurants like this. I don't know if it's the same one, but there's another restaurant that's like the hardest reservation to get maybe in the world because there's no reservation book. You make the table, the like say four years out, and you're supposed to be there on that day, and I don't know how many seats there are. Let's say it's 16 seats as, like, your restaurant. You're responsible for filling all those other 16 seats for that night.
2: Oh, that's even better.
0: Sick! Yeah, it's beautiful. Like, think about that. It's a party. Like, I hey, guys, I got a reservation at at, like, Restaurant X. In 2023. Jokes on you. (laughs) Yeah. And, like, we everyone's going to already assume like if we go to your restaurant in 2023, I got a table.
2: Yeah. You booked a restaurant. You know,
0: that's you why we still restaurant. do
1: this ultimately because like, we can go from the deep, dark, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But we still actually, you know, when it goes right, when you do have that table that walks into the restaurant that's really pumped on being there and you're actually there and the, you you look and everything's super clean as morels, there's fresh green peas, there's white asparagus, the fish is like cracking and you feed them well and they Deer love it. The air conditioning and works awesome. well. The yeah. playlist
2: is, is
0: Everything so many,
1: all the factors line up and you do pull off one of these magical nights. It's, it's still, that's why,
0: that's there, why there, we do it. There are ways to do this. And I, I'm trying to figure that out myself, but like just talking about this restaurant that we could, you could do that. I mean, I really want to do that here, but like, I can only imagine how pissed off are people going to be like, you can't make a table. You can't make a reservation. Like, no, we want to invite you. It's a special algorithm. Right. Like no critic. Think about this. So many of the best restaurants, again, like all things Japanese, they figured this shit out. The, some of the b- very best restaurants in Japan, they don't want the Michelin Guide. You know how you don't get the Michelin Guide to review you?
1: But you invite the
0: customers. So, invite only restaurants. Smart. Fuck. Uh.
1: <laughs> no critics. Uh. Oh, this makes a lot of sense
2: for Fred and Dave's new restaurant.
0: Yeah. Fred and Dave, that's the name of the restaurant.
2: And no eponymous.
0: Yeah. Right? Think about that. Imagine if you had a reservation, you're like, and you, someone back channel a critic wants to eat with you. You're going to be like, mm, no. Yeah, but this is, is, <laughs> I don't want them to ruin a, my uh, fucking table.
2: It's a culture that, that respects and, and venerates the, the quirks, you know,
0: and the... the- but listen, when we left this restaurant, before we left, I believe you have to sort of make the reservation for the next time you're... There's no phone. All right. So, of course, it's self-fulfilling. <laughs> Another of your
2: Ponzi scheme. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's like
0: a Ponzi scheme restaurant in the best way it can be a Ponzi scheme. And I could have, I could have taken this completely wrong, right? My Japanese is fucking horrible, so forgive me if everything I said is a Dave Chang apocryphal version. But that version still is pretty fucking cool. Imagine going to a restaurant and you have to make a reservation the next time, and you only get offered if you like were a good eater.
2: You think you could open a restaurant, you like a a fifteen seat restaurant, and and keep it secret for like working on it. You know, like we, let's say we open a, a Stria restaurant in New York and Minnesota, anywhere. You think it's possible nowadays to just I, work I on a gonna, project like yeah, that and keep it secret what? for two years and just say, oh, the restaurant's open like Yeah, week. if
0: you keep it as reservation, no reservation only, invite only. Yes, you can. Who cares? The media, the the, the Illuminati cool motherfuckers, they can't eat there because guess what? They're never going to get invited. <laughs> Ever. And imagine that, like, that was sort of what I wanted code to really be, like, well, totally I, democratic. But, like, eventually that fucking thing got totally, like, side-railed. But imagine if you were, like, you're a fucking awesome eater. And I know that you make, like, $65,000 a year. $5 for you. <laughs> you, you're a fucking billionaire. That's socialism. $6,000. But it's not. It's a fucking restaurant. But it's a club. It's a fucking club. It's like the, day, it's like the camp
1: there. It's like the camp where uh, the kids go to summer camp but they pay according yeah. to what their families it's earn like in the year. Like what school
2: lunch should be for kids. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Anyway,
1: this is the so shit I found a space on Duane Street that we're going <laughs> to the giant space. The old whalebone building on Duane Street. This is the shit that gets
0: me in trouble. You <laughs> ask me why I still do whatever the fuck I that I do. At the end of the day, for all this much, for all the things I hate about myself and the business, I'm still a dreamer.
1: We're still very much in love with the restaurant business. No yeah. matter how negative we seem, we talk thats all, we, we talk about it all the time. We love it. We just wish that we could make it better, more fun,
2: easier. But I, yeah, I think- Fix our souls in the I, I'm process. very, 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 we're both very much in love with the restaurant business. <laughs> you know, everything involved in it, what's on the wall, the paint, the paintings, the wallpaper, the floor, the floor the And if you've been listening cover, to this,
0: the, I don't know if it'll be played in its entirety. You're probably like, what? These guys are crazy and bipolar, and you're like, "Yes, we are." <laughs>
2: these guys me. sound
0: crazy. You're these like, guys yeah, are actually, not well. Actually, you're right. We're not. <laughs> yeah.
2: Swatch, swatch, color swatches. OCD men. That's <laughs>
1: Fred has like books of color swatches,
2: antagonizing over the which lime green
1: to paint the staff cabinet.
0: You're, but that's what makes you great. I'm not that OCD. It depends on what,
2: like this obsession is painful. You know that you obsess on dishes.
0: Like, yeah, I obsess. I obsess over. Yeah, in my own way. You're right.
2: Yeah, I, and it hurts. You're like, it's not like it's. It just has to awesome. feel right. Yeah,
0: whatever it is has to feel right.
2: And there's there's no guidebook for that.
0: I mean, but you ask. What's at the end for me? I I think about that a lot, right? Like, do I want to continue to do everything the way it is? Like, I don't know. I have no idea what's in store. We have so many employees and I'm so blessed and so fortunate to have such an amazing team and, you know, to have like things working like really well, knock on wood. But like the thing I feel like that keeps me together is to know that like like, uh, we can make things better. Right? like I don't know. I feel like there's so much responsibility on us or myself to like show that we can do it better. I don't know if that's just fictitious or in my fucking head. No, because
1: we're all talking about it. And that's the first step. And, you know, you're here in New York and we're up in Montreal and we speak to our friends in Toronto and other places. And I feel that globally, us who text together and speak together are all part of this awakening together. And I think we're all trying simultaneously by ourselves to do the best we can within our businesses at the same time in history so maybe you know maybe hopefully
2: open your own school
0: i thought about i thought i talked to cho about that
2: yeah
0: for the non gifted and talented <laughs> for the for the less fortunate
1: what do you do with him though he wouldn't get in <laughs> gifted and
2: talented fred can't come no we go to uh The other solution, we go to Mexico or we go to Peru and Bolivia and do ayahuasca and we just um, come back enlightened.
0: Man, I – they always edit this out, always, but I did mushrooms again for, like, the first time in a long time, like, probably – I don't remember last
2: time. Were you ready for it?
0: No, but it was fucking awesome. And I was like, this is why I love doing it. Because, like, you know, and I was like, man, I got to do ayahuasca. I – Lo and behold, like Michael Pollan comes out with a fucking book, which is awesome, by the way, about like how to change your mind. Oh, I was like, oh, shit, like I was doing this fucking forever, but it's something I want to do for more of for sure. But like, how am I going to have the time to be like, where's Dave? Oh, he's on a week long (laughs) ayahuasca trip in Costa Rica and he may never come back. (laughs)
2: He's eating his fingers.
0: I had great I I I
1: did LSD often when I was younger before cooking. And it's funny because when we were building Joe Beef, I I feel that when we were building it, that I knew where everything would go because I'd had that vision already on LSD many years before. Joe Beef trip. did not feel foreign when I was do when we were doing it. It felt like I'd done this, I'd been there. I
0: understood it. I'd visualized it before and then we followed through. So one of the things that I was thinking about when I was shrooming was the fact that like I was like maybe I need to do more of this because I kept on thinking that maybe the best way for me to to like get to the next level of where I can be happy or to let um, go. Let go. I have to let go of all of my burdens, all the people I hate. I don't have time for that shit anymore. All of the old me, I have to let go. But the reason why like, I'm scared of letting it all go is I'm like, if I let it all go, I think I'll walk away from everything. I think, I really think you'll never fucking, and, and no one will ever speak your mercy from you ever fucking again.
1: It's funny. You, 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 you say something that rings home. I just, I bought a pharma a, a, a few months ago with Fred's blessing. He liked it a lot. So I bought it. And I spend four or five days there. And I'm very, 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 very happy there in a way that I've never been happy. Like, I see the sunset rise over the Adirondacks from my bed. And as I have dinner in the ki- in the dining room, in the kitchen, I see the sunset over the mountains in the back. There's apple trees. It's just paradise. And I deeply love it. So I understand that completely.
0: Walking away from it. I mean, like, listen, I- Will that happen? No, but I have to think that way because it keeps me sort of sane. Thinking about the fucking insane keeps me fucking sane.
2: Right? take him up on the cottage, man. <laughs> we should go by step. We'll get the shaman there. We'll all do that.
0: Well, maybe we'll do it up there. Um, you guys got to go. It's
2: 4:20. Yeah. Oh, is it? Oh. No. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you kindly, David.
0: Thanks for, for everything. Us. Always. Well, thanks for listening, guys. That was my conversation with Dave McMillan and Fred Marin of Joe Beef. Uh, A long, crazy conversation. Hopefully it made sense to you. I could talk to them for hours because they are full of wisdom. And sometimes uh, you may not think so because their antics over the 15 plus years they've been doing it have been oftentimes hilarious. But they're really, truly some of the best guys in the business and leaders, believe it or not. They're culinary thought leaders. I never thought I'd ever say that, but I love them very much, and thank you. Thank you to Dave and Fred for stopping by. Um, I don't have any questions this week because I'm recording this in a car, believe it or not, in Los Angeles, and it's incredibly hot in the car. So I I will uh, not explain anything other than we talked about sandbagging last week. We talked about it again quite a bit in this podcast. If you have any questions about sandbagging, I would love to hear more about it. Send questions at askdave at majordomamedia.com because sandbagging is the dark art and something that I think needs to be embraced a little bit more. And also one of the themes that I think you should probably think more about that we talked about in this podcast is the future of food as we try to move towards a more sustainable future for our work-life balance. Does that mean a less delicious future? And I don't have those answers. I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. So please send your thoughts to Majordomomedia.com. Is the future going to be less delicious if we wind up being more basically better and fair to everything? So that's it, guys. Give us five stars on however you rate this, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever. Uh, stay tuned next week. Thanks so much.